Welcome to Understanding the Law, Week in Review. The show is hosted by Peter Lamont and Bob Hughes and is a service of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law, Week in Review is a weekly radio broadcast discussing recent legal and business news. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you wish to discuss any of today's topics, please call our switchboard at 347-855-8831. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. And now, your hosts, Peter Lamont and Bob Hughes. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Episode 78. This is the Monday show on Wednesday due to, believe it or not, technical difficulties. But I think we've got them ironed out, and so... Here we are on Wednesday doing Monday's show. Thanks, Bob, for accommodating the schedule change oh, due to the technical difficulties. Uh, not an I, issue. I blame this all on the fact that um, I was excited for the iPhone 6 to come out, and, and I was talking about my antiquated equipment and how I was going to replace <laughs> it, and I think it got mad at me. Uh, well, I, I thought think, it was maybe you were listening to the uh, new YouTube al- or, uh, U2 album on your iTunes. Yeah, the one that people can't figure out how to get rid of until now well, well, they fixed it. But <laughs> yeah. That's a pretty smooth, Apple. Good call. <laughs> yeah. You know, no, nothing, is, says, no, nothing says thank you like here's something you don't want and, and never want, but rid of. we're going to put it on your phone anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's, a funny, that's a funny little story because they just released the, the fix where now you can uninstall the album, you know. I'm, I'm, I like YouTube, but I'm not a super fan. And so sure. I downloaded the album because it was free. I mean, if you gave me, uh, you know, Chinese food menus for free, I'd take it. I'd look at them and throw them <laughs> out, but I couldn't get rid of this. And I was like, now you're taking up space, and I want to get rid of you, Bono. Yeah. So, well. I, how, about, how, about, how about the option? Hey, here's a free album if you'd like it. Uh, it, just, it just goes to show, I mean, how much control they have over your devices. Yeah. Um, whether you want it or not, you're getting it. And that's, there's a lot of problems like that, you know. <laughs> and you too. And you too. So, <laughs> yes. Well, before we, before we get going, I just want to thank our sponsor, Audible. Um, if you go to the URL, audibletrial.com forward slash utlradio.com, you can download a free audiobook, absolutely free. And then you get a 30 day free trial as well. Um, but even if you don't want to move forward with a free trial, at least go on and download your audiobook. They have hundreds of thousands of books that are available for download. Uh, you listen to them on your iPod, I, you know, pad, iPhone, you know, iPod. Well, they're not going to have the iPod much longer. But uh, in any event, go to audibletrial.com forward slash UTL radio. I also want to remind you that if you're listening live today and you'd like to talk in, to call in and talk about any of today's topics, the call-in number is 347-855-8831, 347-855-8831. Uh, you can also join in the discussion on Twitter. Just go to at Law. That's my Twitter handle. Uh, you can find us on YouTube, Facebook, Google+, and um Stay tuned because at the end of the show, I want to talk about the app that everybody should be downloading, and um, you know, I'll give you some information about that. It's a free app. Everybody should have it. We'll talk about that at the end of the show. 
So, um, and if you don't getting, download it, Apple will make you take it. That's that's well. I'm working on a deal with Apple, <laughs> where everyone's going to get the app, <laughs> whether you like, like it or not. not. That's right. And I think if you pay enough money to Apple, they'll never put up a a remove button. I think you'll be good to go. There you go. They've got so, it figured out. <laughs> yeah, I got it all figured out. So, are you? Uh, do you right. see the new Apple products, by the way? You know, I I haven't subscribed to the Apple Mania, if you will. I have an iMac. I use it for production purposes. I'm I'm not a person that has to have the latest and greatest. Um, at least when it's not, if it's sound equipment, you know, if it's a PA or a, a mixing board, I'm all on board. But I just don't buy into the the handheld uh, frenzy that is the I, iPhone six or anything. I I just I I'll never understand it. And but some people camp out for it. I don't know if you were. You were out there at all, but uh, did you get the new one? No, you know, I looked at it. I happen to have Apple products, but I also have regular PC products as well because it's just sure. the nature of what we do. I kind of need both platforms. Um, there's, there's definite benefits in my mind to Apple for some of the production um, purposes, but certainly I'm not out on the street for two weeks, you know, waiting. I, I don't know that I'd be out in the street for two weeks doing anything. But, you know, waiting for the iPhone, I, I don't understand it. Um, one of the complaints that I've seen is, is, and if you look at some of the marketing campaigns, it kind of echoes this complaint. I saw a really good commercial the other day from uh, Samsung, and they were talking about the Samsung Note, and they were saying that they've had this technology in place, and now Apple's coming out with the iPhone 6 Plus, which is the larger size cell phone. And they're saying, you know, they're, they're imitating us. But then there are those people that argue... You know, Apple does it better. So, I don't know. I, I had the note. I loved the note. Absolutely loved the note. Um, I, I, I handed it down to my child because it got too large to carry around in my pocket. But uh, from a functionality standpoint and software, uh, loved. Absolutely loved the note. I didn't have to uh, have a notepad with me anymore. Everything was there. You know, you can you scribble on it. And it was very, very handy. They call them phablets, I think. So, yeah. But Samsung, yeah, maybe they'll sue Apple. Maybe. It was Apple yeah. Apple sued Samsung, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, it'll be interesting. We had a guest on uh, a few months ago, Yukari Kane. She wrote the book um, Haunted Empire, Apple after Steve Jobs. And we talked to her about uh, – she's a New York Times reporter, and she had, had in-depth discussions with Steve, and she was really involved in a lot of the breaking Apple news. Um, she was scheduled to come back on – few months ago, and then we postponed it because of the Apple, you know, announcements. So it would be interesting <laughs> to bring her back on and see what she says now, because her whole premise was that under um, new Apple management, you know, Tim Cook, and um, it, there's really no leadership, there's no direction, they're way behind the eight ball, and a lot of, of hope was put on Johnny Ivey to kind of turn the company around because they were having problems. So it would be interesting to see what she says. We'll have to get her back on. Yeah, that smacks of the late 80s Apple era when they fell behind and then brought Steve Jobs back. So yeah. the, uh, hopefully hopefully they'll do all right. They, they, they do uh, create make lives a little better if you can afford it. Yeah, if you can afford it, yep. <laughs> all right, why don't we jump into uh, the news, which is obviously a few days delayed, but better late than never. 
Yeah, that's exactly correct. But it's still informative. Um, it is last week, probably the absolutely the biggest the biggest news that came out of anywhere probably was the, I mean, aside from the NFL problems, but we'll we'll discuss that in a little bit. Oscar Pistorius was found guilty of culpable homicide, but not of murder. Oscar Pistorius, a.k.a. the Blade Runner, had been found not guilty of culpable homicide after being cleared of murdering his girlfriend, Reva Steenkamp, on Valentine's Day last year. Reading from her written judgment, the judge told the court that there was not enough evidence to prove beyond reasonable doubt that the athlete was guilty of premeditated murder or even murder. He was also, however, found guilty on one firearms charge but acquitted on two others. Pistorius could face up to 15 years in jail on the culpable homicide charge, but he will not be sentenced until next month. So on count one, not guilty of murdering Reva Steenkamp, however, but guilty of culpable homicide. And that's where my question is going to come from for you, Peter. Uh, count two was not guilty of firearms charge relating to a sunroof incident, which had nothing to do with this particular case. Count three, guilty of negligence in regards to firearms uh, charge that was in a restaurant as well. Then count four, not guilty of firearms charge relating to possession of illegal ammunition. Apparently in Africa, you cannot have ammunition that doesn't fit your weapon, or that's probably the simplification of it. But um, one thing that's probably different there than here is the difference in how they handle a murder charge. They found him not guilty of the murder, premeditation of murder, but guilty of what we would probably call negligent homicide, I guess. Is that correct? And is that something that would happen here, or is that... Two separate games in the court of law. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's similar to what we would consider to be manslaughter um, or uh, variations of lesser degrees of, of murder. There are times there are, obviously, in, in, in the States, there's like the heat of passion murder. The, um, the key element to being convicted of a first-degree murder charge or offense is, is the intent. With all crimes in the U.S., the level of, of intent or the element of intent needs to be present. So obviously a premeditated murder, that's going to give you intent. That's going to get you a first-degree murder conviction. But some of the other things, you know, like uh, you run somebody over in the road and you kill them, that's going to be – that's not – there's no intent there, but maybe you were negligent. So maybe that's going to be a, a manslaughter charge depending upon the jurisdiction. But, but what's interesting in his case is that – by by finding that he's he's innocent of of the first degree murder charge, what they're essentially saying is he, there was no intent. So the jury believed his defense that he didn't intend to kill her. If you remember, he claims he walks in, he thinks it's an intruder, it's her, and he shoots her. So there's no time frame to formulate the intent if you believe his story. It was reactionary. And so he's you know, found negligent in a sense. Now, negligence isn't a term that we typically use with criminal cases. It's more of a civil issue. But that's essentially what they're saying, where um, you've done it without the intent to kill. And it's possible that he sees little to no jail time out of this. So Wow. That was interesting. interesting to see nothing out of that. Yeah. Um, in the U.S., you have to. You can't go to court. I don't. I don't think so. You have to. If, if you're a prosecutor, you have to kind of make up your mind, don't you, and say, "I'm going to try to get a murder one conviction, or a manslaughter conviction, or a negligent homicide conviction." I have to kind of, as a prosecutor, determine which direction my case is going to go. I can't just say, "I'm going to try you for all of these," and we'll kind of see what shakes out at the bottom. 
No, and you know, the, the business of being a prosecutor, in the U.S., it's a very strange situation. Most prosecutors are coming out of law school, and they're getting involved with the prosecutor's office. They're becoming prosecutors, and there's, there's a few reasons why. A, you get these pretty good benefits. B, you get to try cases right away. So those attorneys coming out of law school that are going into the private firms, whether it's or the private sector, whether it's big law or small firms or boutique firms, the likelihood that you're going to try a case in your first year is, is slim to none. You're looking at two, three, four years before you start handling that sort of work. But, you know, conversely, when you go into the prosecutor's office, you're given a caseload. The prosecutors are generally overworked, understaffed, and so you're going to start trying cases right, right out the gate. And that's appealing to some people. One of my uh, former partners was a prosecutor for a number of years. And, you know, we talked at length about it when we used to work together, about what it was like. And, um, you know, we typically don't, I don't handle much criminal work. I have done a few things, but I choose not to do it. But when you go in and you see some of the young prosecutors, the, the, the way that they decide to prosecute a case, I believe, comes down to whether or not they think they can win the case. Because a prosecutor... Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. They have a job, and they don't want somebody to say, wow, you are the worst prosecutor ever. They want to build up this track record, because most of them know if they're not going to be career prosecutors, they're going to want to leave and go to the private sector. And then on their resume, they want to be able to say, successfully prosecuted these cases. So when a prosecutor takes a case, they're looking to see what can we prove. And, and if it's a case where they don't believe that they could get the guy or the girl, they probably don't take it if there's not as much publicity. I think what happened here is that the element of, uh, of publicity that arises out of, of bringing Oscar, Oscar Pistorius in, I think was so huge that it was worth the risk because if you look at the facts of the case, I would be concerned if I was a prosecutor as to whether or not I can prove intent right off the bat. You know, and, and I think that uh, there was less here than in you know, the OJ trial or anything like that to, to even suggest intent. So, you know, I don't know whether he intended to kill her or not. Maybe it was a good story. Maybe he just made it look that way. But as a prosecutor, I would have thought twice before taking this case simply because I think the element of intent is lacking. And what am I left with? Now, if he walks, what is the prosecutor going to say? I did a great job, and it was the, the jury that's, that screwed me over? I don't know. But sure, and this, you know, is a, this situation reminds me of what happened in Detroit recently with the uh, fellow that shot through his, uh, or walked out the front door, shot through his front door, and killed the young girl on his porch. Yeah. You know, very, very similar situation. You didn't investigate the threat. Right, exactly. And, you know, there are times when you have to look at, um, at, at your particular state statute concerning what's your right to protect your home. You know, the laws in Texas are different than the laws in New York. And you've got the stand your ground laws in certain states. You've got the, um, you know, there's some of these archaic things where when, when you see an intruder, if you have a weapon inside your house, there's an intruder coming in, you're supposed to say, stop, go away, I've got a gun. You know, and that's crazy in, in my world. That's ridiculous. If somebody's breaking into and my house. And that's what they teach you in the, uh, 
the, the concealed weapons classes in Michigan, that's what they teach you. It's more of a home security situation. I have a firearm. I will use it. You need to leave, yeah. even if you're not face-to-face. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Give away my position. I'm over here if you're looking for yeah. me. Yeah, I, I think it's ridiculous because somebody comes in my house, I'm picking up whatever I can, and I'm going to you know, try to defend myself and my family. I, I, I just don't think that that's uh, – I think it's something that needs to be overhauled. But you see in the states a variety of different laws – how you're supposed to handle yourself with home defense. In this case, he had, um, I don't know, just the, the, the time to form the intent lacking. I don't know. I think it was a pretty good decision. I have no idea if he did it. I always thought OJ did it from the beginning. This guy, I don't know. And if you watched him at some of the trial, very remorseful to the extent that, you know, I, I felt he's either a really great actor or he's telling the truth. OJ sure. needs yeah, to have no, that remorse. OJ was like, oh, you know, no more naked yeah, gun movies me. for me. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, Damn. I guess I won't be wearing Bruno Mollies anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I may want to start tapping into that pension. Uh, yeah, so and you're, I think you're right with, with the amount of, of press that surrounded this. Uh, something had to come of it, and, and we'll have to wait and see what the sentencing uh, guidelines turn into. Yeah, you know, as, as an aside, you look at what happened with OJ – and you look at Marsha Clark, who was the prosecutor in that case, she did the best job she could do, but at the conclusion of the trial, she made herself book deals, got herself involved with some, some good oh, yeah. lawsuits. So she made a killing off of this. <laughs> a killing. <Sure>. <laughs> I apologize to everyone listening. <laughs> The opinions used and, and puns used in this broadcast are not necessarily those of the. Yeah, she's on CNN now. I think Chris Darden had a similar situation too. So there was life outside of the OJ case, win or lose. Yeah, so you need to keep in mind you asked the question about prosecutors. Well, they're thinking about their next career move, not simply about justice. Ah, Vincent Bugliosi, at ah, you. <laughs> <laughs> For those that don't know, Vincent Bugliosi uh, wrote to Helter Skelter and mm-hmm. successfully prosecuted Charles Manson. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> Anywho, yeah. So we'll uh, we'll have to wait and see what what happens with that. And speaking of waiting and seeing what happens, um, the NFL, which is a whole, I'm trying to even, I'm trying to figure out a new a new name for these guys because they're not. It's the No Fun League right now. The investigation yeah. is leading to questions on law firm choice because they've selected a, a private investigator per se or a private firm to investigate their uh, situation with domestic dispute. Penn State commissioning the free report. You remember that? The Major League Baseball got the Mitchell report. Now the NFL will have a Mueller report having no tie into macaroni. The NFL announcing Wednesday that it has hired former FDI, FBI director Robert Mueller III of Wilmer Cutler, Pickering, Hale, and Door to investigate his handling of the caught-on-video assault by former player Ray Rice. The question posed is what the NFL knew, obviously, and when they knew it. Simply by asking for help from a former federal leader, the NFL aiming to show some credibility, but according to white-collar attorneys who aren't working on the matter, don't know if that's really the best call because clients often hire firms with whom they have a business connection, as Wilmar does, to the NFL. These choices must gain the trust of a scrutinizing public as they move through it. Wilmer knows the NFL well. Richard Cass, who is the president of the Baltimore Ravens, where Rice played, worked as a partner and management committee member at Wilmer for more than 30 years. 
Wilmer partner David Donovan previously worked as general counsel and COO of the Washington Redskins. And corporate practice partner Tom Ward has represented the NFL for the NFL Sunday ticket broadcast package deal. So they definitely have their hands in the cookie jar at this point. Wilmer yeah. spokesperson Breck Latham didn't respond to questions on how much the NFL will pay Wilmer or on the extent of the law firm's past connections to the league. Now, obviously, many investigations often conclude long before federal indictments or media reports expose the issue. The service, usually performed by federal, or excuse me, former federal investigators and prosecutors, is a profitable and common one at elite large firms. Now, the nature of Mueller's work makes the situation somewhat peculiar and tougher on a firm. <laughs> NBC's Mike Florio, for instance, asked on Thursday in a blog post, how independent will he be? And, of course, the National Organization for Women in a statement called Mueller's appointment on the investigation window dressing. So the question is here, is the NFL even trying to get to the bottom of this, or is this just another black eye? I think this will be the third black eye for Roger Grinnell, if that's even possible, mm. um, in, in the handling of this, do they just keep tripping over themselves? Or why, why stick close? Like, why do they make these decisions? Well, money. Simple. Money. But you know what? It's really interesting what's happened in the last few days is that some of the major sponsors have, have now stepped up. Anheuser-Busch um, has said they issued a statement, I believe it was yesterday, telling the NFL that they are extremely dissatisfied with the progress of these investigations. And I think that once you start getting people like Anheuser-Busch, who's a huge sponsor of the NFL, so much money coming from, from that company, I think that that's going to wake people up. And I think that it's already started to happen. Um, the idea of hiring somebody like, like you know, Mueller it blows my mind. Blows my mind um, because it, it just doesn't seem to make sense. Why bring somebody in and, and have them do an investigation when they already have some connection of some sort? This guy, you know, here he is. He was the director of, of the FBI. Now, how much money do you think he's making per hour for this investigation hired by the NFL? <laughs> I, would, I would bet you thousands, thousands plus, you know, not the $200 an hour attorney, $500. This guy's making a killing. And I think that the initial approach, and I don't understand it because it just seems so stupid for a business, and that's what the NFL is to do. Let's bring in somebody that uh, has open ties, open connections, a firm that has been involved with the league before in a positive way, and let's open the door for people to criticize and say that the investigation was not impartial enough or we didn't do what we were supposed to do. And I think that that's why some of these sponsors are now jumping on board saying, we're not happy with the way you're handling this. Anheuser-Busch has a very good reputation of being a company that sort of um, is so anti-domestic violence and, and other things that they don't want this relationship with the NFL to tarnish their relationship. And speaking of domestic violence, um, I was just reading before that domestic violence is the number one biggest problem off-field for the NFL, there's 87 arrests involving 80 players over the last 14 years. And presently, there are 12 NFL players who are active, are playing every Sunday, who have domestic violence arrests. So, Well, that's where a, a, bigger, a bigger question comes up with, with the NFL and, and how they, they levy their, their, their punishment across these different 
organizations, the teams, because it's, it's, you look at, like you had said, just those 12 players that are currently playing, well, all of a sudden it's a big deal because of mob rules. They, they just have never taken this problem seriously. No, but you know what? It goes back to, I think, to the high school level, and here's the connection I'm making. I remember being in high school. I went to a private high school. I was all boys, and the football team brought in a lot of revenue to this, this school. It was a Catholic school. And, you know, you had alumni that were, for some reason, I could never figure out why you'd want to give your money to the high school, but that's another story. They were donating <laughs> a ton of money, and the football team was ranked number one in the state. They had the best uniforms, the best equipment. They built a separate weight room for them. And you hold these, these kids up on a pedestal because of the revenue they generate. And then they get into college, and it's the same thing. And that's why so many kids in college – they don't have the right grades. They're still passed. They do things wrong. They commit crimes or minor offenses on campus. It's let slide because they're the star quarterback. Um, there was a movie. It was in the, I guess, early 90s. Can't remember the name the of it. The program. Yes. The program. And that, that yes. movie, it brought controversy because of some of the, uh, the scenes. I think there was a scene where the quarterback put himself in front of a train on the tracks and they cut ah, certain yeah, scenes. yeah, yeah. But yeah. that movie, if you take it uh, from, from more of a, um, a business approach and you look at it, I think that movie does a really good job of showing you what I believe the NFL and the football programs at high school and college really is like. So well, I'm sure they didn't make any of that stuff up. As a lot of it was probably based on somebody's story that, hey, did you hear about this? Did you hear about this? They may have embellished a bit on how it happened or how to the right. extent it happened. But I bet you most of the stories in there are probably pretty close to true. Yeah, and I think that if you follow the trend, high school, nobody can do any wrong if you're on the football team, college, well, you made a mistake, but we're going to cover it up because of the revenue you generate. You're talking about, for the most part, kids going into the NFL. They're not you know, all 40 years old, that's that 40 years old, you're old in the NFL. So you're seeing a lot of young kids, you're seeing a lot of guys coming out of college who probably don't have the educational background, who are probably pushed through, regardless of what these universities are telling us now about how stringent their programs are with, with athletes. You know, I, I happened to go to college on a javelin scholarship, believe it or not. And I was given and I was only a javelin thrower. I wasn't a star quarterback, but I was given first choice of my courses. I was given the ability to change courses mid-semester where other kids were not. I was given special privileges with respect to dorm um, housing and things like that. So why? Well, because the track program at the school I went to did bring in money. But imagine what the football players go through and how they get, you know, so much money being driven. So, you know, I, I think that that's really what would, it's kind of like, um, it's like an extension of high school in my mind. The NFL is a business. They're using these guys. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. It does. It, 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 it takes a, a, a group of fellows that uh, are taught to play a violent game and teaches them that it's okay to be wrong and you're not going to be public punished for it. And, and now I'm, I'm, I'm under the belief that between, things like this, and the concussion situation in the NFL. NFL football, their, day, their days are numbered. They really are because I don't see a, I, I don't see a, a change in the, in the way the game is played that's going to 
benefit the game, and then I right. don't see a, a culture of change that's going to benefit the game from the development of talent. Because, like you had said, these kids are elevated and elevated and elevated and elevated. And let's face it, not everyone is a rocket scientist in the NFL, but a lot of them have degrees. And, you know, the sad thing, if you want to look at it from a, a, a sort of slanted approach, not to say that any of these guys, Adrian Peterson or, or, or Ray Rice or anybody, not to say that they're not intelligent, but if you look at the statistics with domestic violence in particular, you know what you're not finding, and this is strange, maybe it's coincidental, maybe it makes a point, we're not talking about quarterbacks or punters. We're not talking about, you know, quarterbacks are, are typically considered the smartest player on the team. We're Correct. talking about the workhorses on the team, the running backs, the linemen, the, the safeties and corners. And not to generalize, but I think that there might be uh, something interesting there to look at. Is it a level of education? Were the quarterbacks considered to be smarter? Did they work harder? Did they get better grades? Um, were more of the workhorse players promoted and pushed through the school because they came from a background where education wasn't super important. It's certainly an interesting theory. And, you know, I, I've seen most of these guys on this list of domestic violence offenders not be quarterbacks or punters. Sure, yeah, no, actually, punters and kickers, smartest guys on the team. Yeah. They figured out how to make a lot of money. All they have to do is kick the football. Don't have That's to hit right. anybody usually. So. <laughs> yeah, and they generally don't get hit. I mean, they get, make it knocked over. Yeah. But, so, Matter yeah, of fact, you hit you. the punter, it's a penalty. That's right. <laughs> well, speaking of not so smart, we all do stupid things, but uh, some people tend to do them a little better than others. A picture of a fake sex act with a statue of Jesus is landing a teen in legal trouble. Now, how does simulating a sex act with a statue of Jesus turn into a potential two-year stint in juvie? Well, start by examining the case of a 14-year-old Pennsylvania teen who has been charged with the desecration of a venerated object. In July, the young man posted pictures of Facebook, or excuse me, to Facebook of him physically objectifying a statue of a kneeling Jesus in front of an Everett, Pennsylvania Christian organization, according to the Huffington Post. The boy is facing a charge for desecration of a venerated object in Pennsylvania Family Court. In Pennsylvania, desecration, theft, or sale of venerated objects is a second-degree misdemeanor with a maximum penalty of two years incarceration. The statute describes, or excuse me, the statute describes desecrate as defacing, damaging, polluting, or otherwise physically mistreating in a way that the actor knows will outrage the sensibilities of a person likely to observe or discover the action. That's very key. The statute applies specifically to objects like burial grounds and markers, but also to places of worship and public monuments. Mother Jones reporting that Pennsylvania isn't the only state with this kind of venerated object statute. However, this is one of the few that doesn't require actual physical harm to the property. And Mother Jones also reporting that an LGBT advocacy group, Truth Wins Out, has argued that the law violates the Establishment Clause, which I will ask you about in a second, Peter, to clarify mixing church and state. Uh, the Establishment Clause in the Constitution, mixing church and state, does that even apply here because we're talking about the way the law is worded? It's something that the actor will know will outrage the sensibility of persons. Regardless, does it specify church and state? It could be anything. 
I don't think that the Establishment Clause, I mean, it's a nice shot, but I don't think it applies at all because what they want to say is it's the venerated uh, um, statue or the venerated object issue that they're going to hang their hat on. How can the state enforce laws over religious articles and items? But the statute doesn't say religious. It says venerated. Correct. So right. Any, right. Any, right, any statue, any um, object that may be venerated, it doesn't make a difference that it's a religious group. The Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster has a statue, and if you perform a sect act <laughs> with his you know, long, uh, stringy tent- tentacles, you're going to get in trouble in Pennsylvania too. So I think that the Establishment Clause is, is not the right standard. Um, you know, I think, as we see with all these advocacy groups, they like to file amicus briefs and file lawsuits and try to bring attention to their cause. But I don't see... Uh, uh, any sort of um, establishment clause issue. It's the separation of church and state. Uh, But that would be like arguing that state dollars can't go to private schools, which we know they do. That doesn't violate the Constitution or the state constitutions because it's an across-the-board thing. Um, The same holds true in Oklahoma, where they allowed for the statues to be placed, religious statues to be placed on state grounds obviously we talked about the issue with the the satan statue that they didn't want but there's no establishment clause violation uh, if it's a venerated icon it could be uh it could be anything so now what's the legality think, of actually trying to protect the venerated object i think that um again it, it has nothing to do with separation of church and state if you believe it to be a venerated icon you ha- or a venerated object, and there's a law in the state about venerated objects, I think the issue hinges on, for criminal issues, was it a venerated object? I think that's where the prosecution has to prove that it was, in fact, a venerated object. So clearly a statue of Jesus, a, a statue of Satan, I think that those things are venerated. There's no thought process in place a statue of Homer Simpson, then the prosecution has to prove <laughs> that that's a venerated object. So I'd be in front of the donut shop, of course. That's right, of course. Or the Duff beer mark. That's right. But, um, you know, I think that they're barking up the wrong tree here. What I would like to know is why would anybody do this in the first place? Yeah, well, that's a huge question. And obviously being 14-year-old uh, individual is – not a whole lot of thought process going on, but I don't think he's going to get two years in juvie out of it. I'd say probably a hundred hours of community service, wouldn't you? You know, I would hope so because, well, obviously, I, I would be offended if somebody desecrated a statue uh, that had some sort of spiritual or religious significance to it. I think that two years is way too long. We were involved in a case years ago where kids in the community uh, took gasoline down to a playground and set the playground ablaze. And at the end of the day, these kids sort of walked away. They were, they were, you know, 13, 14, 12. They walked away with just some severe community service. And I think setting a playground on fire is a lot, a lot worse than, (laughs) but we're also in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is different. And um, so we'll see, but I don't think they get two years. No, that's yeah, I would have to agree with that. <laughs> well, speaking of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, Maryland man stabbed over a meatball 
at work. A heated fight over well, what could be possibly a spicy meatball led to one Maryland man allegedly stabbing the other. Now, I don't know if this dealt with a hoagie or just a pile of spaghetti, but on Thursday of a week and a half ago, the assault suspect, 31, reportedly stabbed his co-worker, 36, because he believed his colleague had eaten a meatball from his lunch. The Baltimore Sun reporting that the alleged meatball menace fled the scene shortly after. Maybe I do. They've been working through a little quicker than he thought. Maryland, known nationwide for its crab cakes and chowders, but not meatballs, categorizes food-related attacks much like its sister states as assault and or battery. In the old line state, assault can be either a felony or misdemeanor depending on the circumstances and any form of offensive, unconsented touching can land a convict in prison for up to 10 years. Since the alleged lunch-inspired attack didn't involve a police or parole officer as a victim, the hungry attacker's chances of being charged with a felony, however, are much lower. But if prosecutors consider the victim's injuries from the stabbing to be severe enough or the weapon used to be deadly, I don't know if he used a fork or a knife <laughs> or even a spoon, then the spork. potential penalties may... <laughs> spork, yeah, it was at KFC. Then the potential penalties may increase. Assault with the deadly weapon is often considered a more serious crime. Uh, since the suspect fled the scene, there was a warrant issued for his arrest, and as of last Tuesday, there was no luck in finding him or the meatball. Um, it doesn't just boil down to simple assault. Regardless of what you do, you don't have the right, per se, to stab someone unless it's yeah. physical. You know, It's just a bad choice on the part of the meatball owner. Well, Absolutely. There's a better question. What, what constitutes my touching you in a physically threatening manner. I mean, what can you do to be short of touching me that would allow me to touch you? Anything? You know, the way that battery um, is laid out, it's any harmful or offensive touching that's unauthorized by a particular person. So um, I'll give you the classic example. You go into a room and there's a chair. You're, you're, in, you're in college. There's a, a desk or a chair. And you go to sit down on that chair and somebody pulls the chair away and you hit the floor. <laughs> that good, can good be example. considered a battery because oh. it's, it's sort of proximately um, caused by your um, harmful or offensive touching. You know, it's a direct correlation between your action of pulling the chair out um, that's more in the civil sense. Each state has its own statutes concerning assault and battery. They're slightly different than the civil uh, laws. But the only time that you really have any sort of valid reason or defense is if you uh, suspect it, and this would be based upon a reasonable person standard, would a reasonable person believe or suspect that they were in imminent harm then obviously self-defense comes in and you could defend yourself. But how in this case, you know, you think that it's okay to stab somebody with your fork, spoon, or spork over a meatball that's completely ridiculous. So there's, there's <laughs> you know, clearly the guy is going to be guilty. Obviously he should be fired. And, um, you know, I could see something like this, though, especially in the New York area coming up with a defense of, uh, well, you know, he had done something to me earlier and it had nothing to do with the meatball. This was uh, sort of a, a delayed self-defense from something else that he had done or he went to the, bo the boss. And so who knows what comes out of it, but I think that this is one of those absolutely ridiculously silly lawsuits or, or criminal um, cases 
where you've got to just sit and wonder what is wrong with the world we live in. Really? And what's, go what's to, the mental capacity of the guy doing the stabbing? Yeah. I mean, go to Golden Corral. Sit down. Take two hours out of your day and eat as many meatballs as you want, all for four ninety nine. So <laughs> I don't understand it. Well, we'll see what happens with that one in particular. The um, uh, other thing is this also applies to cheesesteaks, so beware, Peter. Um, you I might want to you know check your – You know what's so <laughs> funny, though? I have to tell you, in every office I've been in, including this office, there are people that get upset when you touch their food. Oh, and sure. I, so, I, I, I so, agree with you. I mean, at this point I'm now, down. in order to be safe, though, I'm going to go remove all the, the, foons, the spoons, forks, <laughs> knives, everything. <laughs> Round everything off. Really, I think we're going to have to do like the um, medieval times. Everybody's going to have to eat with their hands from now on. Oh, there we go. There we go. I like the idea of that. I'm, I'm like that with my fries, though. I, 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 have, I proportion my fries to my burger bites. And I have exactly enough fries and with my toast and eggs that I get one bite of burger for my bite of fries. And if you take any of my fries, you mess things up. See, that scares me about and you. I, and I will stab you. Very frightening. <laughs> well, you better check your, your website, Peter. This is right up your alley. A law firm is being sued over its use of stock images on its website. Yeah. Now, I don't know if you built your own, Peter, or I know I built my own, so I try to use my own pictures. NationalLawJournal.com saying that men and women in suits sitting around just talking, well, that classic web image is one way law firms show prospective clients what they do. This is what we do here. However, you sit around all dressed walk, up. <laughs> and just chat. Looking just good, chat. Peter. Yep. Feeling good. <laughs> However, a new lawsuit in Washington State, accuses a firm of ripping off stock images for its website without permission. Master File Corp., a Canada-based stock image licensing company, filed a suit on September 11th in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. Oh, it's time Washington State, my bad. Accusing the law office of Jerry Joseph for using two licensed images on its website without authorization. Joseph, who was a solo practitioner in Washington with an intellectual property law practice, incidentally enough, declined to comment. Court records show Masterfile has filed three similar copyright infringement lawsuits so far this year in federal courts in Texas, California, and Arizona against a real estate agent, a financial consultant company, and a chiropractor, respectively. According to the complaint, Masterfile says it learned Joseph's firm was displaying the two photos on its website around February of 2013. They notified the firm that it didn't have permission to use the images, and the firm took them down. Masterfile said that over the next few months, they tried to contact Joseph's firm about settling its claims, but with no success. Master Files' lawsuit includes a request for the maximum statutory damages, now they're just adding insult to injury, of $150,000 for each alleged willful infringement under the federal copyright law. Well, they're going to have to answer this claim anyway, though. Can't, can't avoid phone calls anymore because it's in court. Um, yeah. This is one of those things, Peter, where you know, maybe you don't have control of your website if you use an outside firm, but who is ultimately responsible for that content for building those websites? And, man, you got to be – it's the same for music. It's the same for pictures or videos. You have to pay for your sources. But who's yeah. responsible? Well, let's look at it first with what it is. You know, it's so easy now to go on to Google Images and pull up a string of images that would be appropriate to put into a website. And I, I like you, we, we um, use all of our images, and if there are stock images, we get licenses to use them. Now, 
you know, you go onto Google Images and you're tempted to just pull things that you know are stock images. Um, some people have said to me, because we obviously we're a business firm, we do a lot of business consulting, and a lot of people will come and say, look, I found these stock images. I know they're stock because they're on other sites. We're going to use them. I don't think we have a problem with it because they're stock images. Well, that's not true. If you don't have a license to use one of these stock images from whatever provider you're going to go and, and purchase from, Masterfile or um, you know, iStock Photo or any of these, these sites, you are committing trademark or copyright infringement. And if, to answer your question, you don't do it yourself, you hire a third party. Well, it, it's an interesting question because let's assume you don't have a contract in place with your web developer. When the web developer shows you a proposed site and you say it looks great and then you go live and you've not done any due diligence to determine whether or not the images have licenses, did they provide you with copies of the licenses. So in that scenario, you both could be sued as defendants, whereas if you have a, a contract with your web developer that provides for indemnification of you, the end user, in the event that they commit some sort of copyright infringement, then even though you will be sued, you transfer that lawsuit over, it's called, um, uh, you know, that's the defense of it. So you're tendering the defense of your lawsuit to this third party with whom you have a defense and indemnification agreement. So even though you're being sued, you say, hey, it's not me, it was you, you guys said you would defend and indemnify me, you get the lawyer, you defend the case, and you know, tell us what happens. But if, if you don't have that in place, and oftentimes when you're dealing with web developers, they don't think that way. They want to make sure they get paid, they want to make sure that you work with them, that you cooperate with them, that they're not redoing your site thousands of times, but they don't think about uh, defense and indemnification. And when our business clients look at these agreements, some of them are, you know, to build a website, sometimes it can be $200,000, $600,000, depending upon the complexity of the site. You need to look for, is there a defense indemnification? What is, if I'm not doing it, then the onus is on my third-party vendor to make sure that they have all proper licenses. So, and I think there are a lot of, uh, I don't say non-qualified because it's the wrong word to use, but um, smaller web developers that don't work within the confines of, a, of an agreement like that. And similar to someone preparing your taxes, hey, Johnny's good at, pay, at taking care of taxes. Have Johnny do your taxes for you. Oh, sure, no problem at all. Well, Johnny takes care of it. Well, Johnny makes an error. Too bad. Johnny doesn't have insurance to cover your area. You're at fault. I mean, that's kind of a similar situation, isn't it? It absolutely is, and I think that anybody that, that goes into business at any level, and this is what we tell people all the time, nobody wants to hire a lawyer. We get that. Everybody hates lawyers. We get that too. But if you're going to go into business and you want to turn a profit, then you have to make sure that you spend your attorney money on the front end of your business because if you're spending your money on the back end, that means you've already been sued. Now, look at these people here. I understand it's a law firm. Let's take this scenario, turn it around a little bit. You know, it's a small business owner that hires a firm 
to come up and build their site. They use unlicensed images. They get sued. Do you do? Well, now we're going to hire a lawyer, and the lawyer is going to charge me double what he would have charged me on the front end because yeah. now I'm, I'm stuck. <laughs> and now you're either out of business or whatever. And then at the same time, you've got to worry about paying whatever you settled for. So spend your money wisely. You want to start your business right? Put your money in the front end. Get your attorney, your CPA. Let those people help you set up your business, including working with your web developers. Make sure that there's privacy policies on your site. Make sure that your vendor agreements are reviewed by an attorney because otherwise, look at the penalties, 150000 for each alleged willful infringement. And what is a, a sort of a, a misconception with people is, you know, I'll infringe until I get the cease and desist letter. And when I get that, then I'll take it down. Well, the cease and desist letter is not mandatory, and it doesn't eliminate the fact that you've committed infringement. So whether or not you get served with this cease and desist, even if you get it, take it down like this law firm did, you still committed the offense. You're still liable for copyright infringement. So... Those people who say, well, I'll take it down once I get the, the, the cease and desist, walking yourself down the wrong path because they can still file no, a claim I'm, against you. Actually, I'm working with a radio station right now and developing a tag for their uh, station. And they, were, they didn't do the research on the front end of their last tag, which they had to pull because exactly that. They, they didn't find out if it was used. They got a cease and desist letter. Now, are they going to get sued? I don't know. But now they've come to me to say, hey, we need – to do this, I said, okay, here's what you need to do. Here's, a, here's some tags that I've researched and suggested. Now, you need to do your due diligence on your end to figure out if they are copyrighted or trademarked where we can't use them. And then if it's not, then trademark it so that somebody doesn't come back and get you. And to what you had said on putting your money on the front end, you know, it may cost you 150 200 bucks an hour to get something done right, but you know that is what it's going to cost. And on the back end, it's open-ended, baby. It is. It is because litigation can go from six months to two and a half, three years. And, it, you know, you take what you're going to be paying on a monthly, hourly basis, and it's astronomical. Whereas if you had done it right the first time, you know, nothing's guaranteed. But we tell people that if you do it right the first time, I, I firmly believe that you can eliminate 90% of litigation that's going to arise out of your failure to improperly set up your business, including your website, marketing activities, that sort of thing. Um, by, by putting your money up front, I think you save 90% of what's going to occur down the line. Um, these sorts of things seem insignificant, but not when they come with a $150,000 price tag. And the kicker is that these images probably would have cost him less than $100 to have licenses for Absolutely, yeah, yeah, uh, thirty nine ninety five. So, uh, yeah. pay more on the front, or pay it, pay it in perpetuity on the back. Um, something that 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 um, you may have. I don't know if you've had an experience in this or not, but this is an interesting situation. This next headline: Justice is getting schooled in rap. NationalLawJournal.com telling us that the musical tastes, obviously, of several U.S. Supreme Court justices probably run toward opera. But as the start of its fall term approaches, the court is getting an intense education in another genre, the rhythmic, slangy, and sometimes violent poetry of rap music. 
One brief is in a case that uh, comes before the court, recites the lyrics from an Eminem song, I'm Back. The song states that I take seven, and he's referring to kids from Columbine, stand them all in a line, add an AK-47, a revolver, a 9, and a Mac-11, and it ought to solve the problem of mine. And that's a whole school of bullies shot up all at one time. I don't quite have the rhythm to read that correctly, but you'll get my point. And there are other notes that come from other groups that in the last 20 years has changed the face of popular culture. Now, um, the modern musicology lesson is a key part of one of the more interesting cases on the high court's fall docket, Elonis versus the U.S., set for argument on December 1st. It asks whether the online posting of threatening language like that found in rap lyrics violates a federal law against transmitting any threat to injure the person of another across state lines. Now, the case is involving Anthony Elonis, of Pennsylvania, something, something about Pennsylvania today, uh, began, he began posting angry prose on Facebook in 2010 after his wife left him. He often stated his messages were in jest, and sometimes they sounded as much like legal analysis as threats. For instance, quote-unquote, did you know that it is illegal to say I want to kill my wife? Unquote. That's what he wrote. Now, the, that not dealing with that particular case, but he's in discussion of the posting of rap lyrics, what the onus is, is whether or not rap music becomes protected by the First Amendment, and as over time, it progresses into what is acceptable culture. Now, you have people quoting poetry all the time, you have people quoting older lyrics, but does rap and its change in posture from the words change what the status is and what the, the current culture is, and especially with regards to Facebook and social media. Is it okay because, quote-unquote, his friends knew it was a joke, but another reader alerted police? Now, in a brief file on behalf of the Student Press Law Center, joined by the Electronic Frontier Foundation and others, they're offering illustrations of this problem. In 2013, Justin Carter of Texas responded online to a gaming friend who said he was crazy. By replying sarcastically, Carter said, oh, yeah, I'm going to shoot up a whole school full of kids. Now that, again, taken out of context, becomes a threat. So at what point does popular culture, at what point do sarcastic threats become protected from the First Amendment? It's an interesting question, um, but it really comes down, I think, to common sense. Now, you know, look, look at rap music. Back in the late 70s, early 80s, prior to Run DMC and, and bands like that or groups like that. Rap music was a, a fringe sort of, of, of genre, and then it became sort of ingrained into popular modern culture. And now you've got country stars, pop stars, rock stars, all infusing elements of rap music into their, their works. So... You know, rap music's here to stay. It's part of the culture. Are there songs that have come out, rap or otherwise, that have violent lyrics in them? Yes. I mean, you look at bands like Slayer, and Slayer was all about, you know, Satanism and violence and things like that. Is, is that being questioned, or is it the rap music? Um, I think that the lyrics to songs are artistic. I think that whether you like them or not, You've got to admit that it's, it's part of the art um, world. It should be considered, obviously, um, 
just what what it is. It, it's it's an art form, whether you like it or not. Now, if you take the lyrics and you use the lyrics to any song out of context, you can probably create something that's not there. Even in the Eminem song, um, you've got to look at why he's saying that and look at the lyrics to the rest of the song and determine, is this song promoting going to a school and shooting everybody up, or is there a satirical element to what he's saying? Um, so I think that in that sense, we all know that, that the rap lyrics are protected First Amendment speech. They're considered artistic works of art, and so obviously there's no musicians being prosecuted for making these terroristic threats. Now you take some guy who is obviously angry, doesn't like his wife, and he's relying on those lyrics to further his violent agenda, I think that it doesn't have anything to do with the lyrics. I think it has to do with the demeanor and intent of the person posting them. So you have a kid who's going to you know, recite the words from a rap song, and you look at the totality of the circumstances, it's more than him just saying, oh, by the way, here are the lyrics to this song. It is I am using this as a sword. I'm using this as a way of getting my message across, and my message is hate or violence or whatnot. So I think that that's really what it comes down to. I think that it's got to be looked at on an individual basis, and the totality of the circumstances have to be applied to see whether or not the individual posting is somehow committing a crime. So is the context, uh, does, it, does the context have anything to do, or would it change if you identified your source? Say, I want to kill everybody, and then put, oh, Eminem. <laughs> you know, does it I change the possibility of context and, and intent? I think depending upon the totality of the circumstances, if I have a Facebook page and it says, I hate my wife, she took all my money, she's you know a whore, she's this, she's that, and then I put the lyrics from a song, uh, I want to kill my wife, and then I, I hyphenate that and put the artist's name, does that do anything for me? I say no, because if I look at the full picture, I'm seeing that there is the intent or the desire to express feelings about my wife, if I were to just go onto my Facebook page and post lyrics to a song and then attribute it to the artist who wrote the lyrics, I think that if I were to be prosecuted or uh, some, something were to come of it from a legal standpoint, I win because I'm not doing anything wrong. I am creating a site and an atmosphere of fear, anger, violence, or, or terror of some sort, then that all ties in. You know, an example, we, I think we talked about it on this show, but we had a case years back, maybe eight years ago, that involved a mother who had, uh, she was a single mom, and she had a kid that was um, into neo-Nazism, and he had... Yeah, it was, yeah. Remember yeah. this one? He had pictures yeah, yeah. of Hitler and, and things in his room. And I mean, is, is the picture of Hitler inherently dangerous, inherently violent? Is it something that you could be arrested for, and I say, whether it's in poor taste or whatever, you know, you want to say, no, you can't be arrested for that. If your Facebook page and the rest of your, your life surrounds violence, and now you've got a picture of Hitler in your room, does it change it? Yes, it does. So I think it's the same here. I think that the lesson to be learned is don't be stupid, because if you post something online, people are going to see it. 
over the last few months, Internet service providers have been more willing to cooperate with government investigations and comply with subpoenas and turn over information that, you know, five years ago was protected. So you're stupid. If you post something like that online, there's something wrong with you. If you have those thoughts, go get help. But whatever you do, don't air that sort of thing on social media. If you look at what's happened recently in New Jersey, I think it was last year. I can't remember. I think it was last year. There was a shooter that entered the Garden State Plaza Mall. And they look at his Facebook page and they look at your social media and they see what you were into and why you did it. The same with, um, you know, everyone else that commits a crime nowadays. They're looking at your social media. Is that admissible to prove that you had intent to commit a crime? And the answer is yes. So don't be stupid. If you have thoughts like this, <laughs> go get help. But, you know, I understand. I, I know a lot of people that we have either, you know, our divorce department have, has worked with, um, or, or people that I know uh, on a social level, divorce is tough. And oftentimes you end up hating your, your ex. And I understand that. I see it with people. I understand why you could have those feelings. But don't vent on social media by saying something that you really don't mean because you're going to get in trouble and there's nobody that's going to be able to help you. So, Well, and that's exactly what Anthony Alonis is, is convicted of is, is – um is is that he he although he actually didn't commit anything the intent was there and his lawyer is believing that well no you can't say that because you do need to uh, satisfy a higher hurdle for providing the speaker's intent to threaten and that higher standard obviously preventing the punishment of legitimate speakers solely for failing to foresee how others might react to speech yeah i think that that there's a, an easy standard to look at i think it's quite clear to a jury whether or not your comments were intended to incite or to instill fear. I think that uh, I think that, that jurors uh, should be given more credit. I think that they can very clearly look at the totality of the circumstances and say, here's a kid posting rap lyrics. Here's a man who's using rap lyrics to try to scare the crap out of his ex-wife. So I think there's a big distinction. I think jurors are smart enough to figure that out. Well, let's hope for his sake that would be the case. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and it's, actually, you know, you start to talk about people figuring things out. The uh, a lot of people are down on the administration for trying to pursue more judicial uh, actions against terrorists. Now, you have this Brendan Tevlin's jihadist revenge murder, and that's evidence that domestic terrorism is actually here, and they need to figure out a different way. A New York radio personality calling for increased attention to the June murder of a 19-year-old Livingston man, calling it evidence that domestic terrorism is already here. Todd Pettengill, host of WPLG, uh, The Todd Show, discussed the death of Brendan for more than eight minutes on the air, asking why the case not receiving more attention despite the alleged murder's admissions that he'd killed Tevlin in an act of vengeance for U.S. military actions in the Middle East. Or Todd Pattengill, saying that it was in fact an act of jihad perpetrated by a fellow American who sympathized more with those who want to annihilate us than those in his own country and his people. Essex County, Essex County authorities have charged the 29-year-old assailant, Ali Muhammad Brown, with killing Tevlin in a West Orange intersection on June 25th. Since being taken into custody on July 18th, he has confessed to the murder along with three others in Washington State, saying that they were carried out as retribution for innocent lives lost in Iraq, Syria, and other parts of the Islamic world. 
Petting girl criticizing Barack Obama, the president, and the U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder for not referencing these cases in recent addresses and downplaying the level of threat radical Islamists is currently living in the Americas pose. Now, you know, the thing is, everyone's kind of been on him for not taking a hard enough stand on this. Uh, is this, and I don't even want to get into the politics of it, but is this more the showboating on the, the part of this host, which I think it is, but speaks to the question definitely that, is the administration handling these correctly? Do they have a better way to handle them within the, the, the uh, judicial system? Or should these things be maybe even handed over to the uh, military and uh, played out in a tribunal? Well, you know, what's interesting here is that, that this happened in, in my neck of the woods. And um, Todd Pettengill, who has been around for a very long time, he's a very reputable host, uh, he was involved with WWE stuff a long time ago. Um, it's a nationally syndicated show. People know him. It was uncharacteristic. And I, I myself have had the opportunity to speak with him on numerous occasions. Um, it was uncharacteristic for him to to say what he said. But I think it's hard not to talk politics when you talk about something like this because Look at all of the other attention that is given to racially charged uh, crimes, things that have happened over the past few months in other areas of the country where there has been a great deal of media attention to it. And you look at this case, most people have never heard about this before. It's something that it's just swept under the rug. And so what's the reasoning for that? Why talk about sort of, uh, you know, police renegades that, that go on a, a, a sort of allegedly racially infused beating or killing spree. Uh, but why doesn't this get any attention? This is, it, it's an interesting question. Uh, these parents live in, in the area where, you know, our, our home office is. So, you know, they've been very quiet about it. They don't want to talk about it or bring much attention to it. I think it was very interesting that he raised it. Um, it does it does start a conversation about why. Why is this not as important? And then you could get into a whole host of political issues such as why has the U.S. ordered 600,000, allegedly ordered 600,000 hazmat suits to combat Ebola, yet <laughs> people don't know about that until, you know, recently. It's interesting, and it, it goes down a path of, of, of government criticism, and I don't think that I'm qualified to do that, although I do have my own personal feelings. But it, it certainly sure. is worthwhile to look into. Why is this not getting attention? What what are we are we talking about ISIS now? So so shocking. Month ago, ISIS not a threat. Somebody got to watch out for. Within four weeks, they have become the ultimate force in the universe. And we're, we're fearful and we're, we're now engaged back in military action uh, at some point with troops on the ground. So where is this all going? Where is it all coming from? Why is this not an issue? What, how, is, how is it all related? I don't know. I think it's a very, very disturbed world that we live in. I think that the problems that we're, we're seeing with the breakdown between uh, relations with the U.S. and Russia – Obviously, the Pope had made comments about World War III and how we're seeing, you know, many, many battles within World War III. Very scary times, really. And Ebola itself is completely scary. And I don't know that you can trust the government. 
And I'm being nice by saying that. <laughs> I was just going to say that's a nice way to put that. Um, well, that's you know you start to look at, and, and, and my draw from that was, is, and I don't want to say the government, but is the judicial system the right uh, venue for handling these situations? Because it is, you know, that, 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 that determination hasn't been made, to my knowledge, that, hey, we are technically, if not philosophically, at war with individuals for various reasons around the world, and they're going to come here. At what point does that line leave the, I guess we'll call them social murderers or, or, or people that have a, a problem? Looks like we just lost Bob. Hopefully he'll uh, fix his connection and call back in. Um, just to finish on his thought, though, I, I think that it's an interesting argument or point that he's making, which is what's the right uh, entity or agency to handle this? Is it appropriate for the, the judicial system to handle it, or is this a matter for Homeland Security? And I think that that goes back to issues raised by Democrats and Republicans and the general public um, when we're talking about what happened with Guantanamo Bay. Bob, you're back? Yes, I am, yeah. That was very See, my, my technology to do that. My thing. technology <laughs> problems have spread. But I was you just finishing. Much like Ebola. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I was just finishing your, your, your thought, just because I'm a yeah, mind yeah, you reader. Probably have. You probably know exactly where I was going with that. But What's yeah, the separation? I, it's very tough, and I think that now you've got to look at I, I was mentioning the fact that Homeland Security issues, you know, they raised a lot of questions with Guantanamo Bay and um, so where do we stop? Is this a judicial matter? Is this a matter of Homeland Security? And I think that I would reason that this is a matter of Homeland Security uh, because there's the possibility of uh, potential groups within the U.S. Now they're talking about splinter cells and lone wolves acting out on behalf of ISIS. Why wouldn't this be a matter of Homeland Security? They're talking about other individuals in Washington state, but it's, uh, it's interesting how they've decided to handle it. I, I think and I that think home, the, Homeland Security is a blurring of a line, in my opinion. It yeah. is, it is the, the way to transition from a military outlook to a civilian outlook, and that, that line gets easily crossed right there, I think. It does, and I think that the, you know, the whole idea of Homeland Security stemming from the 9-11 attacks in the Bush administration, I think it was the best solution at the time because of the state of confusion that the whole world and our country was in, people criticize Bush, and maybe there are, are you know, certainly reasons to criticize him. But I think, thinking back and living through 9-11, I think he did the best that he could under the circumstances. So sure. is Homeland Security perfect? No. You know, do I need to have my uh, three-year-old felt up at the airport? Probably not. But who am I to say? Sure. Well, and we'll have to wait and see how that develops, and especially now with, with more players in the game as we become more internationally involved in, we'll call it jihad. Um, we, we talk every week, it seems like, about different employers doing some stupid things when it comes to genderification and their employees. Well, MSG, not the monosodium glumate folks, but Madison Square Garden boss, the sewer is advising women with lawsuits against Mets co-owner Jeff Wilpin to prepare for war. A former top female executive who settled her sexual harassment suit with the Madison Square Garden folks for $11.5 million 
has some advice for the woman alleging Mets co-owner Jeff Wilpin ousted her from the front office because she was pregnant and single. Hunker down and prepare for ward, Annika Brown-Sanders told the Daily News. Lee Castigen is represented by the lawyer who also took her case, Brown-Sanders, to federal case uh, to trial in 2007, in which a jury heard accusations that former Knicks coach Isaiah Thomas and MSG boss James Dolan oversaw a workplace that was hostile to women. So she's got some, some experience in that realm. Castigen is a 33-year-old graduate of the University of, guess where, Pennsylvania, contending that she raised issues and a bonus for her work, or she, me, she received raises and a bonus for her work, even though she likened the challenge of hawking tickets to the parentally losing team to selling tickets to a funeral. Now, in addition to accusing Wilpin of making humiliating comments about her pregnancy and the fact that she didn't have an engagement ring, Castergen's suit landed a few shots at the Mets organization as well for mismanaging its roster and overpricing tickets. Brown Sanders said discrimination in a sports organization is no different than any other industry. Uh, and that's, gosh, the NFL, maybe. The, yeah. the Mets have denied Castrogen's allegations and noted that she received a promotion in December 2013 when the organization knew she was pregnant. Now, the suit contends she was promised the promotion in August 2013 before she revealed her pregnancy, so they're saying that's really not an issue. So, again, here you've got a, um, a major company doing some stupid things when it comes to women. Say, oh my gosh, you know, you can't make comments about women being pregnant. It's a bad idea. You can't uh, just say, yeah, how, how you doing? <laughs> Walk on by. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's completely stupid in this day and age that people don't understand that. But I think that, and, and you know, people are going to say, oh, you know, I'm down on, on sports. It's not true at all. But I think you look at the sports as a business and you look at the stupidity involved, and then you have to question, what is the business experience and acumen of those people involved in the uh, organizations? What's their level of intelligence? I have worked with a, a baseball company who supplies equipment to the majority of the universities in the United States. These guys are former major league players, and they sell to colleges, and they you know, have uh, endorsement deals with major league players. And they have said to me, in no uncertain terms, baseball players are not the brightest bulbs in the shed. And <laughs> not to, you know, to oversimplify not this, to be but, little, no, yeah, yeah. Right. But you're dealing with people in these organizations. Generally speaking, you're not being pulled from top-notch either schools or other companies to run these organizations. And I think that that has a lot to do with it because there's this general sense that you know, old school mentality, women can't be in the locker room, women can't, you know, be uh, sideline reporters, they don't know enough about sports, they're not as good as, as men at this, uh, this sort of thing. I think it's carried through to a lot of the beliefs that some of the players and the managers have, because I think that they're relatively ignorant with respect to the laws. I think that they're, you know, raised thinking differently. And I know it's a, a massive overgeneralization, but I don't have another explanation for it because in today's business world, when you go through school, you inevitably in college, you're talking about business, talk about areas of law that are going to affect your business. You see it in the newspaper. You talk about it all the time. It's commonly known. People who are employers and have businesses are always calling lawyers saying, I've got somebody who's pregnant. Can I fire her? And it has nothing to do with the fact that she's pregnant. I'm just concerned you know, because they're a protected class. So 
I think that that they're just they they've got to be stupid people. I don't understand it any other way. <laughs> I mean, look at look at the the, the MSG suit, eleven point five million dollars. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a ton of money. These people have deep pockets. They're targets. Why be stupid? But I don't know. What are you going to do? I guess. Uh, Baseball players aren't that smart. I hate to say it, but that's well, what my clients told me. I think you take a lot of those major sports, that, and, and you can, like you say, overgeneralize if you'd like, but uh, it goes back to what you said earlier about the athlete that is <clears throat> excuse me, groomed through high school and into college and into pros. Finally, that they're part of this little clique, and they can almost do anything they want and get away with it, and that's you know, across the, the organizations, whether it's hockey, football, baseball, and soon to be soccer. But the problem is the real world doesn't look like that. When you take an individual from that world and put them back into the real world and they screw up, they don't I don't know that they necessarily knew that they screwed up. And that doesn't excuse yeah. it. But they don't it's okay to sit around the locker room and, and joke about pregnancies or joke about this or joke about that when it comes to the opposite sex. But when you get outside of the locker room, fellas, gotta watch your mouth. Yeah. Yep. And so, you know, it, and it really does boil down to, to bullying, and that's what sexual harassment is or workplace harassment is. It's bullying just like it would be in a school. And a lawsuit alleging bullying, bullying and sexual assault at an Ocean View High School district is right back in the headlines as well from the HBIndependent.com. The family of an autistic student has filed a lawsuit against the Ocean View School District and several other defendants alleging he was bullied and sexually assaulted by two peers and that school officials allowed the abuse to occur. The district and four employees are being sued on claims of negligence, emotional distress, and violation of the Disabilities Education Act, among other allegations. The suit also targets two boys for alleged sexual assault and battery, seeking unspecified monetary damages and restitution, according to the claim. Filed on March 21st, the student had been bullied multiple times by two boys from his school. The lawsuit claims the student was knocked over by the two boys in separate incidents and another time was punched in the groin by one of them. Then on June 12th of 2013, the student alleges the boys again punched him in the groin and then, quote-unquote, sexually battered him with a marker, unquote. The student required surgery because of the incident, the suit says. The suit alleges that four officials knew about the bullying and the assaults and did nothing to resolve the situation. The suit claims the school district did not call the police after the student's mother told the administrators that she would call the police, but the administrators said, no, you don't need to call the police. We'll handle it. Bad call. The lawsuit says an administrator told the student's boy that one of the boys may have poked her son with a marker in the buttocks and that the boy came from a good family and that she was personal friends with the family. Another bad idea. Separate them. Before the next school year, the school officials and the student's homeroom teacher told his parents that he would be safe the lawsuit says. However, that year the lawsuit says again, the two boys were in three of his six classes, not safe at all, and the suit claims he was punched in the face, and on a police report filed September 10th of 2013, alleges one of the boys again punched him in the chest. I mean, this is not a good call again on the student. And, you, and, and sadly, it's every week we read about these, it's nobody figures this out, that this is an ongoing problem, and you've got to handle it because it's not going away. No, and you know, I've been involved directly in a lot of these bullying cases, and I just cannot understand the administration in these schools. I have a theory behind it, but this case is such a perfect illustration of what happens in a typical bullying case. You've got an administration 
or an administrator or superintendent, a principal, a vice principal, who will say, you know how many times I've heard that? He comes from a good family. He didn't oh, right, need it. Right, I'm yeah. sure he didn't do it on purpose. Well, that's, that's crap. That's absolute crap. <laughs> when, when you are involved with the protection of children, the supervision of children, in any capacity in a school, even a janitor, because you do have some duty to a student if you see something going on. When you get the initial complaint, you have an absolute duty and responsibility, an obligation to sit down and try to resolve this problem. You cannot look at something and say, oh, I know this kid, he likes to tease, I'm sure he didn't do it on purpose, or, oh, this other kid, he's a hypochondriac, we don't think that this happened. You know, this is wrong on so many levels. Wrong because every student deserves to be protected while they're in school. Stupid because as a business decision, when somebody complains about something in your organization, you should investigate it, unlike the NFL, and have some common sense and say, listen, even if I don't believe this, even if I think I've got my own views on it, I better, you know, CYA. I better protect myself. Make sure that I've done the right things so that if it comes back to bite me, I can say, here are the steps that I took. But And we have a is, couple of stories like this today. Yeah. Everybody seems to be so afraid, though, of making that hard call. And typically, it's not a one-time incident with bullying. And that's the distinction with bullying. It is a continuous uh, attack. It's something that happens over time. Can you say one incident equals bullying? perhaps depending upon the circumstances, but the general definition across the country of bullying is something that's more systematic. So schools and authorities in the schools, they have a warning shot. They just have to be in tune with what's going on and acknowledge it and they understand it and then not be afraid to take action. And if you don't, yeah. look at the consequences. What happened to this kid is, is ridiculous unacceptable well, is it is it a situation where you know not to relieve any school of, of responsibility but if they don't know how did they not know and that begs the question is does the kid not say something and so that way nobody knows or is the school just not involved can they make that judgment call and say you know what something's wrong here or is that go to the point of, you know, the old, you know, well, you should have known it was going on. Well, how am I supposed to know if nobody tells me, or is there a neglect situation even on the school for not being more uh, cognizant of what's happening in the classroom? Well, that's a really interesting question because if they had no way of knowing, then they're alleviated from responsibility. But it's going to go back to, well, what policies and procedures do you have in place for reporting bullying? So we've dealt with schools where there's been no reporting. Um, they will have you report to the school nurse any incidents of bullying, but the school nurse is only in once a week. So if you're not bullied on a Monday, you're kind of SOL. So, <laughs> you know, what do you do? Is that a good procedure? Can they be held liable because they had a nurse once a week, and if you didn't catch her in those times, then you had a week till the next week. Well, that's somebody that could be held liable because they didn't have the procedures in place. But in a scenario where kid is bullied, 
does not tell anybody. Nobody sees it. There's absolutely no way for the school to know. The school shouldn't have liability. But in today's day and age, with guidance counselors and gym teachers and, you know, peer counselors and upperclassmen, somebody's going to see what's going on. Because a lot of times, bullies don't do things in private. They do it in public to get a reaction out of the other students. You know, they're not just satisfied with, I'm going to meet this kid in a dark alley and pummel him. They want to make an example. They want to look cool. They want to show off. And they do it in front of other kids. And it's very hard to believe that there are more than a handful of incidents where the school had no way of knowing. No way of knowing? Okay, if you've taken all the right steps, you're probably off the hook. Do you have an anti-bullying policy? Do you have a way of having your students report bullying incidents to somebody that can be reasonably available and then take action if need be? If you have those things in place and you don't know, but you really don't know, then you're okay. But Yeah, and that's, 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 that's that line where, you know, what's going on. And there can be, you know, I'll give you two examples here that we have in news today of how, I want to say, how well it can go for you as a district and how badly it can go for you as a district. In Chicago, or Chicago area, Chicago Tribune reporting that a parent who alleged in a suit filed last year that St. Charles School District 303, the staff failed to prevent her son from being bullied at school, was awarded $15,000 in a settlement with the district, according to court records. Now, the settlement amount was approved by the Kane County Circuit Court in June. It accounts for damages for personal images to the woman's son when the district allegedly failed to keep another boy from striking him and causing him to fall and injure himself. According to the documents, the plaintiffs incurred $13,471 in medical and hospital expenses related to the incident. Uh, the district, the child, and his parents were also listed as defendants in the original complaint. So that's kind of good it can go if you, if you don't get it done. How bad can it go? Well, <laughs> Loudoun County, down by Knoxville, Tennessee, the school board is facing a $25 million lawsuit filed by the family of a greenback teenager who was admitted to a psychiatric hospital as a result of bullying by other students. Students in the first of its, or this lawsuit is the first of its kind filed in an East Tennessee state court, according to one attorney who was representing the student referred to in the complaint as Minor Doe. Now, the suit names as defendants the Loudoun County School Board, the director of schools, Jason Vance, Greenback School Principal Mike Castile, as well as a guidance, a guidance counselor, a teacher, and several students. The problem began when the plaintiff was in fifth grade and progressed over several years. Like you had said, Peter, this takes place over a period of time. However, as the student entered the eighth grade, the problem intensified. And the faculty members did recognize the problem back prior and developed a safety plan for the incident. However, the female student was classified as a special needs student, claimed she was subjected to verbal and physical attacks by older students. One of the students accused of physically assaulting her was removed from the school after getting into a fight with, thank goodness, another student who came to the aid of the plaintiff. Now, it didn't stop, though. It continued. Now, the plaintiff went under outpatient care at Vanderbilt University Medical Center after threatening suicide. On September 25th of 13, she was admitted to the emergency room at Vanderbilt. The emergency room doctor stated she was showing signs of extreme bullying. According to the complaint, the defendants individually and collectively failed to acknowledge the bullying existed and failed to take actions to address the problem to train those in charge. The suit asking for $15 million in compensatory damages and $10 million in punitive damages plus attorney fees. So there's two real big differences in how these cases are being paid out. The question is, 
Peter, what makes the difference between a $15,000 settlement and the possibility of a $25 million settlement? It depends on so many factors. You know, it depends on, A, what the potential liability is for the school. How well did they protect themselves? How well did they comply with uh, state requirements concerning anti-bullying policies and training of students and faculty? How many seminars did they have? How many times did they try to educate their students and faculty as to how to handle bullying? What did they do? So that's a factor. What, you know, what actions did they take to prevent it? Other factors include the severity of the bullying, whether or not there are serious injuries that arise out of the bullying, and then a, a final factor well, I mean, you could also throw in some sub-factors like the experience of your attorney and that sort of thing. But the final factor comes down ultimately to what the family believes is a fair settlement for them. We talked on this show about the bullying case in northern New Jersey where a boy in seventh grade was punched in the stomach or backhanded in the stomach and was paralyzed from the neck down due to a, due to a freak health condition uh, that you know nobody knew about, but it happened. And so as a result, he was paralyzed. That case settled. Now, the demand was $25 million because here you've got a seventh grader at the, the time the lawsuit was settled. He was in high school whose life has been altered forever. He was very intelligent, very promising as an actor, and you know, now very difficult to pursue that career. They demanded $25 million. What did it settle for? You know, two and a half. Now, conversely, there was a case involving a girl in a shop class who put her fingers under a circular saw to clear away scrap wood and lost three of her fingers. And that was just a pure old negligence suit on the part of the shop supervisor. But she settled for 1.7. So you look at a case where I've got a paralyzed student, 2.2, 2.5, and I've got a, a kid with no fingers, 1.7. How does that, you know, really balance out? Doesn't it seem like the kid who's paralyzed should have gotten a lot more? So what did it come down to in that case? It came down to the fact that the school board had everything in place, and what the plaintiffs were able to hang their hat on was that information conveyed to the vice principal was not transmitted to the principal. But that's a far lesser sin, if you will, than some school district who has ignored things or who doesn't have the right policies in place. And then it came down to what the family wanted to do. And they didn't want to try the case. It was going to be too emotionally upsetting for them, for the kid. So they decided to settle for 2.5. And that's a factor that, you know, that's that X factor. You don't know what a client is going to do. I've had many cases where a client has been adamant that they've been wrong, business and otherwise, yet when it comes time to go to the trial, they can't do it, whether it's a fear of public speaking or whatever else is, is going on in their lives. They don't want to do it, and then uh, they settle. So that's the, the, the X factor. The other thing is the nature of the injury. You would reason, because every injury has a value in the field of law, a paralysis has a massive value. Look at the future loss. Look at the pain and suffering. Whereas the loss of a finger, while traumatic, and I'm not downplaying it, 
it's not worth as much. You can take a scar, for example. Scar on a boy in high school, on his face, worth less than a scar on a girl. Scar on a boy's mm-hmm. leg or shin, worth next to nothing. Scar on a girl's leg or shin, worth at least 25000 And is that, that kind of, I don't say belief, but that that is commonplace in decisions, or that's just based on how attorneys handle the um, long-term effect of that disfigurement. That's going to be what a jury is going to value that as. And the way that attorneys work is that we look at prior jury verdict and settlement analysis to see what is this injury worth. And it just is a factor that um, stems from the, the fact that a guy, that's a, a funny story real quick, we deposed a kid who was injured in school and had a, a, a scar on his leg. They were, they were doing something holding a bungee line that had a handle attached to it. It was a plyometric activity. Kid was running while the other kid was pulling him, and the kid thought it would be funny to let the, the handle go and have the guy go flying yeah, across the gym. Funny, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> not when I lose a scar. Right, the handle shot into the kid's leg, left a, a scar. It was, it was a big scar. It was probably about three inches. We deposed the kid, and I said to him, you know, well, let, let's see it. I looked at it. You know, yeah, it was noticeable. I said to him, what do you think about it? He says, I think it's cool. So, you know, his case went right out the window right there. And I'm like, what do you mean you think it's cool? And he said, well, it makes me kind of look manly. As a matter of fact, I got a lot of uh, attention from it. Whereas next caller, <laughs> yeah. Whereas you put that same scar on a girl, and it's oh my god, I can't wear a skirt. Oh my god, I can't wear shorts. People aren't going to want to date me because I've got this disfiguring scar on my leg. So it's a different animal, and that's where juries come down. Um, that's how how attorneys value the case. What did a prior jury do in a same or similar set of facts? And then, you know, that's how you figure out what that case is worth. But a paralysis case, clearly, by the nature of the injury, should be worth more than a finger-off case. So then you look at the other factors, and that's what helps determine it. But vastly different in the two stories that we just discussed, um, dollar amount-wise. Now, you can allege whatever you want, $15 million and $10 million in punitive, likelihood that that's going to come anywhere near that amount, super slim. Punitive damages are punishment, so you'd have to be able to reach a heightened standard and show that uh, it was more than just negligence. So you can allege whatever you want, what you're going to settle for, much less, but that's that's how it how it how it goes. I think Bob, yeah. what we should do. I'm sorry sure. to catch up, but I think what we should oh, do. Good. I'm going to let you finish your thought, but I think we should because um, we're going a little long today. Save what we've got, because these are timeless stories, if you will. We can go through them on Monday. Uh, but I want to let you finish your thought on this bullying thing. Oh, no, and absolutely. You know, I think that, you know, you talked earlier about uh, businesses. You go into a business and you're going to start a business. You get your work done up front. You know, if you're an administrator, if you know an administrator uh, and you're listening, it's not a bad idea to consult your school board. If for some reason you have it, get your lawyers involved on the front end and say, you know what, we have to address this. How can we insulate or indemnify ourselves? What's a good process based on your advice, lawyer, to go forward with a bullying uh, program or an anti-bullying program, I should say. So I don't, I don't think there's, 
it's, it's, it's always a good idea to get your lawyer involved. If you even smell the hint of a possibility of getting yourself destroyed on the back end. You know, that's a really good point, and, and it's illustrated by the fact that um, some superintendents have approached our firm and said, listen, can I hire you independently of the school board attorneys because I want to make sure that somebody's got my best interest at heart. I want to make Great sure that point. I'm doing, Great point. Yeah, doing the right thing here with this anti-bullying program because the fact of the matter is this. School boards, again, I'm going to generalize, but school boards are comprised of people who either have kids in the school or don't have kids in the school. In the town I live in, half the members of the school board haven't had kids in school for like 10 years. So how are they up on things? But putting that aside for a second, it's made up of individuals, of parents, of business owners in the towns. It's not necessarily made up of people who have a tremendous amount of experience dealing in in matters of bullying and, and safety and that sort of thing. The superintendent is like the quarterback of the team, but the superintendent is bound primarily by the votes of the school board, and the school board is the one who elects or puts out these requests for for qualifications um, for attorneys to represent the school board. And what is the basis of who they're going to hire? Money, budgetary restrictions. They're going to hire a firm who they know, somebody on the school board is friends with, there's a family member over there, or the firm's going to cut them a break. So the school boards are, are, are electing the attorneys for a variety of reasons. The attorneys view this as, oh, we're going to get a client who's going to pay us every month and here's the money we're going to make. But forget that for a minute because you're dealing with kids, and I think that you've got to put money aside when it comes down to dealing with the safety of children the safety of their emotional well-being as well as their physical well-being. And we, I've, I've really applauded those superintendents who have come here and said, listen, it's not that I want to spend a ton of money. I'm not looking to throw money away, but I think I might need some guidance. And can you do that? And now those people uh, I have a lot of respect for because they're looking beyond what the bare minimum is. They're looking at how they can protect themselves and make the school better, thereby protecting the children. Yeah, no, absolutely. At least they're recognizing the fact that they may have some limitations of their knowledge or experience in something that could really be detrimental to not only their career, but obviously, as you said, the safety of a child. Yeah. So uh, I think what we should do, Bob, let's pick up on Monday. We'll go through some of the rest yeah. of the stories. There's some really good ones. I, I especially like the Louis Vuitton story, but we'll talk about that on Monday. <laughs> That's right. Um, just a couple reminders. Tonight, 5 o'clock, live both streaming on YouTube and on the radio. Um, we're going to do our first Minding Your Business. Uh, it was a, a segment that I was doing a while back, and now we're bringing it back because a lot of people have said that they'd be interested in hearing it. So 5 to 6 tonight, you can go over to the YouTube channel, join me live, streaming on YouTube, and uh, listen to it here on Blog Talk Radio. Go to utlradio.com, get all the information and the links to the player. Uh, also, you can download this episode um, or subscribe to this podcast in general, which is really the way to go because then you automatically get the new episodes downloaded to your device as soon as they come out. And that helps you keep up with our schedule and not miss anything. Um, because as you can see, even from the week in review program, we build on things that we've talked about weeks ago. 
And so I don't want, to, want you to miss something that, um, that we're talking about. And, you know, we had, we had kind of laid the groundwork for it a few weeks before. We do that all the time. So it's important. Um, again, thanks to our sponsor, Audible. If you want to go and get that free audiobook download and the free 30-day trial, go to audibletrial.com forward slash UTL radio. Uh, I think that I might have misspoke earlier when I announced the UTL. I think I said utlradio.com. That's incorrect. It's audibletrial.com forward slash UTL radio. No dot com. I got too carried away with the dot coms. Um, other than that, once you download this uh, episode, if you're not listening to it live, give us feedback. Bob is always saying to me, I want to hear what people are thinking. Uh, it helps us create better stories for you. It helps us explain issues that you might have a greater interest in learning about. So interact with us. That's why we're doing this. Post on Facebook, post to Twitter, go on Google+. Once we get the video portion uploaded, and I know that there's been some, uh, some episodes missing on the YouTube channel, um, but we're going to get back into the swing of putting the videos up afterwards. So interact with us and let us know what you want. I promised you at the beginning of the show that we were going to talk about this app. I want to remind everybody that we have an app that corresponds to both the firm and to uh, Understanding the Law Radio. It's available exclusively from the iTunes Store. It's available for the uh, iPad and iPhone, including the new iPhone 6 that you're going to spend a boatload of cash on. Um, but go ahead and uh, download this app. Uh, it's it's you know fairly important, I think, for you guys to have it because, A, it's free, right? Who doesn't love free stuff? B, it, it really does offer you a good service. We perform these services as community outreach, the radio show, the videos, everything that we do um, to give back to the community. And this app helps us accomplish that mission uh, because it helps us give back to you by allowing you to have free access to an attorney to ask your questions Download the app, and then you can post your question directly through the app to an attorney, and you'll get an answer. It also gives you access to all of our video library and um, an easy way to stream this show live or to download it later. Other uh, quick notes that I just want to bring up this Sunday, and I uh, have to pull the date real quick because I have lost track of time, especially with this being Monday's show um, being moved to Wednesday for this week. It looks like we're talking about the 21st. So on the 21st, this Sunday, uh, the firm is going to be participating in the CHD uh, Heart Walk, and this is a, a coalition for congenital heart disease. Um, many of you who follow the firm and follow our, um, our, our outreach programs will know that my uh, second son, Luke, has a heart defect, and he um, has had a pacemaker since he was six months old, and we like to uh, get involved with heart-related charities. And this is a, a, a smaller uh, charity. It, it still is a, um, a nationally recognized organization, but it's uh, really kind of confined to um, – helping kids with congenital heart defects. And unlike the American Heart Association, which we also donate to, I'm not knocking it, uh, they, they have outreach to a variety of programs, anti-smoking programs, uh, adults, teens, 
the CHD coalition is primarily focused around children, congenital heart disease in children. And I think it's a wonderful organization because it really brings a lot of attention to something that we often overlook. And um, it's, it's really something that I think people should look into more because there's just not enough funding for kids with heart disease. Um, and it's really one of the number one uh, maladies that affect kids in the U.S. today. Uh, it, it's congenital heart disease. So it's a, a really important issue. It's close to my heart. Uh, we're going to have links up later on today to uh, allow anyone who wants to donate to the uh, coalition. It's a, it's a 501c3 non-for-profit organization. Uh, all of the funds are used 100% to aid in uh, the support of families with congenital heart uh, defect issues and to fund research. So it's a really great organization. So we'll post pictures after the event next week. And um, we also have a string of other uh, charitable issues or, or events coming up, including our annual co-drive, which we'll talk about in the next few weeks. So uh, tune in tonight, 5 p.m. Eastern Time. We're going to talk minding your business. We're going to talk a little bit about what lessons we can learn, believe it or not, from Sons of Anarchy. The show was on last night. And uh, address some other issues. Um, tonight's topic is really going to be focused around timing and patience in business. So tune in tonight live. I'd like to thank you for listening. Thank you for participating. And um, you know, tune in to the rest of the shows. Go to utlradio.com to get the full show schedule. Remember that there's power in understanding the law.